The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. Welcome back to part two of this episode. I really hope you enjoyed part one. Now let's get back into it. How many books have you written now, just to clarify? Two. Well, three. Three. But when I self-published, I don't count it. How to live a happy life with a chronic illness. But one that I was looking at recently was the grief handbook, a guide Mm -hmm. through the worst days of your life. Yeah. When did this come about or how did this come about? Uh, So I published it last year, 2021, um, July 2021. But it came about because in 2019, in July 2019, my mom died very suddenly and we were besties. I was the only girl. We look alike and sound alike and wore the same clothes. And, um, we were super close and she was totally fine. She was like a completely healthy 72 year old. They actually came to, they, they, my parents lived in Durban and they flew to Cape Town in the March of the year that she died to come and watch the cure play live because our whole family loved the cure. And it was this like amazing, balmy evening under the stars and the cure was playing and my whole family was dancing together it was like such a peak moment in life and that was in March and in June she was diagnosed with cancer and on the 1st of July she died and I there were 13 days between when she was diagnosed and when she died and it was just like a horror movie in slow motion um so she had very few symptoms before she was diagnosed. She had like acid reflux and sore feet. And then she suddenly lost weight and got very tired. So we sent her for this battery of blood tests. And she had an esophageal tumor that had metastasized to her stomach, liver, and brain. She had a stroke the day after the diagnosis. And then the oncologist said there was nothing to be done, which was actually such a gift because we didn't even have to think about treatment options. There was literally nothing. So we brought her home, but then it was just this awful, like litany of things that went wrong at the same time. So my brothers and I and all our families came to Durban to our family home to, to be with her. But all the kids got rotavirus, which is this like terrible vomiting stomach bug. So all the kids were vomiting. One of them ended up in hospital because she couldn't stop vomiting. My mom's dog committed suicide two days before she died. She could swim and she was very yappy. And she jumped in the pool and didn't swim and didn't yap and died. Apparently this is a thing. 
the house next door, which was had been there forever as long as we lived in, in our family home. The day we brought my mom home, they brought in a wrecking ball and smashed down the house and uprooted like mature trees from the ground. It was just, it felt like if this had been a movie, I would have been like, dudes, enough with the symbolism. <laughs> We're getting it already. And then she died. And then like the whole thing was over in two weeks. And I'm a writer and a reader. And so I looked for a book that could help me navigate this. And there just wasn't anything. There were really religious books, which I didn't want. And they were like deeply philosophical books, which I couldn't wrap my head around. And I just wanted something kind and empathetic that would say like, oh man, this is so hard. I'm so sorry. Here's a podcast that might help. Here's a poem that might make me you feel a bit better. Here's some space to vent and just be super pissed off. And here's some space to remember the things you loved about the person that's died. And you're not alone in this. We're all in it together. One day at a time, you can get through it. And that's the book I wrote. And it is so beautiful. It's illustrated by this amazing local illustrator. And it's like part um, memoir because it's telling the stories of my journey through grief, but then there's a lot of workbook stuff in it and coloring in pages and it's really lovely. I can't believe all of that happened in such a short space of time. <laughs> oh man. And then we came home so that my kids couldn't stop vomiting. We came home because we had to, and like we had, to, my husband had to get back to work. And as we pulled into our driveway, I was like, I wonder what's going to have happened to our house. And we walked in and there was a black, wasn't a crow, what was it? It was like a black starling, a bird had been trapped in our house and was just flying around in circles. And I was like, okay, I get the symbolism. Could we all just calm down? It was awful. It was so awful. So how did you find the strength to start writing a book? I think writing's always been therapy for me. Like I've always journaled even before it was like a hip thing to do. And I I felt like I had to get it out. Like the story was so intense and I, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with finding meaning, which is also part of my whole like creating silver linings out of diabetes. And so it felt important to me to to write it down, even if no one else saw it. But then I mean, best laid plans. My plan was, so my kids were young then. I wrote it when they were three and five, so they needed a lot of attention. My dad had to go in for a knee replacement surgery. And so I flew to Durban and my plan was I would check him into the hospital and then I'd have five days in Durban completely on my own. I wasn't going to do any other work. I was just going to blast out this first draft of a book because I had the idea in my head, but I hadn't had time to like actually get it down on paper. This was in March, 2020. <laughs> which might ring a bell. Mm. And the day that we got, the day that I checked him into hospital, I was back at the house. I was having a gin on the veranda and I was thinking like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to start writing. My brothers call me and they're like, should we have a family meeting? And I was like, no, everything's cool. He's checked in, like all good. They were like, no, no, the president's shut down the country. If you want to see your husband and kids, they're going to have to fly to you tomorrow or you won't see them for, for who knows how long. And I was like, what? <laughs> so my kids and my husband got on the last flight out of Cape Town. It's like a two-hour flight. They managed to get to us. We, we lived in Durban for six weeks. And so I actually ended up writing the first draft over that six weeks of lockdown 
of COVID lockdown. But what was so amazing was that I was back in the home that I'd lived in from when I was six to when I left home. I was sleeping in the room that my mom had died in because it had, was my room. There's clouds on the ceiling, so it was the nicest room. Like her ashes watched over me in the room that I wrote in. It was all like very pregnant with meaning. But it was such a cathartic experience because I was able to be back in the place that all this terrible stuff had happened and find some meaning in it. So it, it was as much therapy for me as it has been helpful for people later on. Hmm. So do you feel even just the whole process of writing the book helped you deal with your own grief at the time? Absolutely. Yeah, because it it made me... You know, there's something about writing that forces your thoughts to become linear because there's a beginning and a middle and an end. And so what felt like this like giant, ugly mass of grief and heartache and horror was given some kind of structure through writing it down. And I could see, oh no, there was actually, there has been a journey and things have changed. And the things that were so awful in the beginning have lessened somewhat now. And I'd written blog posts about it along the way, which was actually really helpful because you forget, right? You forget how you feel about things. And and even in the year since she died, I'd forgotten so much. And then what was so, like the timing of it was also beautiful. So I wrote this rough draft and I sent it off to um, a, a publisher just on a chance um, to an editor at a publishing house in the UK. And because it felt like a good fit. And then I found out that it was going to be published. So it was published in the UK and America. And then I've also published it in South Africa. So it's available everywhere, which is just amazing. Like that this world we live in, that something can just be available everywhere. But I found out that it was going to be published just before the anniversary, the first anniversary of my mom's death, which was just like such a, such a bomb because it had felt like people said to me afterwards, like, oh, this is so amazing. You were able to do this and make meaning out of your mom dying. And if I could choose, like I would definitely choose my mom here rather than having written the book. Someone else could have written the book. But at least it felt like it wasn't completely in vain. Like something good was able to come from it. Hmm. Grief is obviously a very personal thing to everybody, depending on circumstance or what specifically they're going through. And obviously... Hmm you were relating this book to essentially a very personal thing for you. Mm. How do you want or how do you hope that somebody feels about their own grief after reading your book? My only intention with it is that people know that they're not alone because there is this very weird, actually. I mean, if you think about it, grief is the one thing we're all guaranteed to experience. Literally every single one of us is going to lose someone that we love at some stage in our lives. And yet when it happens, it feels so isolating and it feels like you're the only one who's ever felt like this. And it's kind of crazy making because I don't know what Ireland's like, but society, I know that it's, it's like this in the UK and the States as well as here, because I've spoken to friends in other countries, but we're so awkward about it. Like we don't know how to talk about grief. And so we kind of put the pressure on the person who's grieving to get over it as quickly as possible because we're so uncomfortable and, and our hearts are in that place where we don't know what to talk about. And so like if someone is openly weeping in public or like clearly falling to pieces, 
we don't know what to say. And so we come up with these horrible platitudes, right? Like everything happens for a reason or um, I'm sure they're in a better place or like all these things that, that just piss you off when you're the one grieving. And so there's this pressure to just put on a happy face and pretend you're okay, even when you're not. But what's going on inside is that I didn't realize until my mom died how physical and mental and emotional grief is. I had assumed it would be like a really bad depression and then it would lift. And I didn't recognize that like mentally it's as if they call it the fog of grief, like this fog rolls in and your brain just stops working. Like you forget things and you like go to the shops for three things and can't remember what they are and you miss appointments and like my brain just didn't work. It's kind of like having high blood sugar, that feeling of like you just can't think straight, but all day, all the time. And then emotionally you're like maxed out, right, on grief. And so you become volatile because any little thing makes the cup overflow. So like I would weep at the drop of the hat. I was super irritable and snappy. Like I just, and I, I, I was so bored with feeling awful, but I worried that I would never feel normal again, that this was like the new me. And then physically that took me the most by surprise is there are these like very profound physical reactions to grief. So blood sugar was high for months, literally for months, because Grief is a prolonged stress response. And so your system's flooded with cortisol. So like insulin turns into water and my blood sugar just didn't behave. And I just didn't care because it was not a top priority at all. And I had persistent headaches. One of my brothers had like stomach cramps that wouldn't go away. My dad felt constantly fluey. And then you also become super clumsy when you're in the fog of grief. So like... I remember the one day reaching for a glass from the cabinet and then it just fell out of my hand and I didn't know how that had happened. And one of my brothers is a surfer and he had this like crazy surfing accident where he surfed into a rock and had to have like six stitches. And my dad tripped on a bath mat that had always been there and broke a rib. Like it was so, it's like you're stumbling around in the dark and everything is just completely overloaded. And I had no idea that this was what it was going to be like. And so I want the book, I wanted and want the book to just, if you're feeling this kind of crazy, to know that it's totally natural and whatever you're doing is exactly what you should be doing. There's no right or wrong way to do it. And eventually you'll feel better. And that's the response I've had from people is that it's been such a relief to know that they're not the only one feeling like this. Hmm. You said in the book, Bridget, that there were wise words or poems from, mm. I think the exact quote, from those who have walked before us on this bleak mm. path. Is there anyone or anything specifically from history that had helped you get that fog away from your overhead? It was more just things that helped reframe it. So like there's a very short poem that I will probably not be able to do 100% right now, but it's um, life is eternal and love is immortal. Death is only a horizon and a horizon is nothing save the limit of our sight. And I love that because it felt like, okay, she's not gone, gone. It's not that this is, uh, there is no experience of 
the love that I've felt for all these years. It's just out of sight. And there's another one, a very well-known poem that's in the book, Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am the thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glint on snow. <laughs> I know the whole thing off my but I won't do the whole thing. But it's it's essentially saying like, the people that we love don't disappear completely. They are present in our lives in in nature and in moments with other people that we love and in memories and they're there in intangibles. Mm. It's a really nice way to to frame it and to see it. Mm. You know, and mm. that like my dad my dad hasn't died, but he always says when the time finally comes, he, he always says, always at your shoulder. And it's like mm-hmm. basically what you've been saying or the, the reference from the poem. It's like the wind that passes. Mm-hmm. It's them in a sense, yeah. which is a nice way to look at it. It's completely sucky if you're the one who's just lost someone because you don't want the intangible. You want like the, you want to hug the person, mm. but it it's, it's better than nothing. Mm. Yeah. So tell me about the podcast then. What made you want to start podcasting? <laughs> it seems like you, you do all these different things. Uh, I, the honest, so the honest answer is that I found out that Google was indexing podcasts, which is like mind-blowing information. You clearly already know this, but maybe your listeners don't because this, this like blew my mind. That for every word that a podcast publishes, like Google is reading that as words as like written words. And as a writer, I was like, but I can talk a lot faster than I can write. This is very exciting. Um, and also I have, so that was, that was authentically why I got interested in podcasting in general. And then I have this thing with wanting to, I really love first evers and the South African diabetes scene is so fresh and new and growing that it's fairly easy to do the first ever. So this was the first ever South African diabetes podcast. Um, and as up, so I started Sweet Life 11 years ago um, and we're a nonprofit and our focus is on diabetes education. So it felt like the first ever South African diabetes podcast should come from Sweet Life. And there were all these questions that I knew our community had and we answer them in articles and we answer them in social media posts and um we answer them in webinars and we get experts to, to like do videos with us, but we hadn't ever answered them in a podcast. So it felt necessary. So the first season was like the frequently asked questions. And then the second season was all about awkward conversations. (laughs) Um, And we talked about like mental health and eating disorders and like all the sticky side of diabetes that, like the language of diabetes, like the, the sticky stuff that we should be talking about, but it's kind of orcs. And so a lot of the time we don't. So is there any, even off that, any conversation or story or experience that you've heard from somebody specifically that has stood with you the most or influenced you more than others? So we ended the season on an interview with an endocrinologist philosopher, Dr. Sandy Bruder. He's amazing. So he's a, he's like an actual philosopher. He calls himself a philosophy student because he's a philosopher. And he's an endocrinologist, which is like quite a weird combination because one is very clinical and medical and one is very life of the mind. Mm. And so I wanted to do 
the question was, what's the root cause of diabetes? I wanted to know, like, why do we get it? What are we here for? This is the same guy. I'll send you the link. It's the same guy that we were talking about. Why so many type ones, type A? And it was so fascinating because I wanted an answer, right? I wanted him to be like, well, here you go. You want to know what the root cause is? Here's the root cause. Here's why it's happening. And he didn't give me that at all, but gave me kind of a framework to look at diabetes differently. And and I really appreciate, like I also just really appreciate the chance to be able to talk about it more. Like it, even conversations of, of any description I think are so helpful because it feels like the reason we started Sweet Life was to start these conversations about how it's possible to have a healthy, happy life with diabetes. I was diagnosed, so 15 years ago I was diagnosed, I was sent home with this stack of information. I read everything. I was so hungry for information. And it told me I was at increased risk of blindness, amputation, heart disease, kidney failure. And nowhere in anything that I read did it say, or if you look after yourself, you can live a perfectly happy, healthy life with diabetes. It's, it's not going to stop you doing anything. Like mm. my husband and I walked 500 kilometers of the Camino de Santiago in Spain. We've done multi these like epic multi-day hikes where you're totally off the grid. Like we've been scuba diving all over the world. There is literally nothing diabetes has stopped me from doing. And yet nowhere, I looked everywhere and I couldn't find that message. And so I think the more we can talk about it, the less it becomes this death sentence like that was the vibe like people would be like the, the most hopeful thing anyone said to me was diabetes is not a death sentence and I was like geez <laughs> okay well, thanks, thanks. <laughs> let's set the bar as low as it is physically human to set it <laughs> exactly so presumably then you and it, it's very reminiscent to the sorts of things that I had come across when I was initially diagnosed but in fairness one of I suppose in the midst of all that, one of the first things that I was told by a nurse who I trusted at the time when I was diagnosed was the analogy that she used was when you're diagnosed with type one diabetes, it's like stirring a pot. And she says, mm -hmm. you just need to keep consistently stirring that pot and make sure it doesn't get too hot and make sure it doesn't overflow. Just keep stirring the pot and you can do everything that you want. That's I, lovely. That's kind of like, an, that's the analogy that I've, I've kept in my mind for all these years. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's exactly that. It really is. Gosh, that's wonderful. I was use, told. You can use that one, Bridget. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, getting, oh, I'm using that everywhere. My defining memory of being in hospital was that the lady who came to show me how to inject for the first time sat on the edge of my bed and she was trying to do like the demo injection. And for some reason, the needle wouldn't work and no insulin was coming out. And she got so pissed and she was like, oh my God, I'm having such a bad day. And I was like, hello, I have just been diagnosed <laughs> with type 1 diabetes. I oh, think I'm man. having a worse day. She that was like well, an experience. Yeah. And she she didn't even notice me. I was like, bro, hello, over here. <laughs> so wow. your pot stirring is much nicer. <laughs> you went that I wonder way. how bad the day was. I know. Bridget, I've really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. I have to say. Me too. So much of what you've said has resonated so much with me. And I know anybody listening is going to feel exactly the same as me. You have a wealth of knowledge and experience with the condition. And you've already even just opened my own mind into thinking 
about something completely different. And that is even just the flip of the type of personality that's diagnosed. Yeah. I'm going to send you this root cause episode. It it is fascinating. Absolutely. Wait, I wanted to give you the best tip. This actually changed my life. I I think everyone else probably knew it, but in case they didn't, I I try and spare this all the time. Do you keep a juice box next to your bed? Glucose tablets, so kind of the same thing. Mm, No, because... Glucose drinks, but not a juice box. So a juice box, you don't... It doesn't matter if it gets hot or cold. You can just leave it there all the time. And it's in reaching distance if your blood sugar goes low at night. It changed my life. It completely changed my life. I used to walk through to the kitchen and open the fridge. Oh, really? Bad things happened. It's it's a dangerous game when you wake up with a low blood sugar at night. So I have, I have, they're called lift drinks. They're like small glucose drinks. Um, Okay. So same, same purpose as a juice box. I keep them beside my bed, but I know if I get down to the kitchen with a, a low blood sugar at night, it's game over. So, I so. once was at my in-law's house and woke up in the middle of the night low and went through to the kitchen and there was chocolate ice cream and ice cream is like my kryptonite. I love ice cream more than anything except fruit. And I just got a teaspoon and started eating and like, you know what happened the next morning. It was disastrous. Yeah, it, so I feel yeah. like anytime I'm talking to people with diabetes, I have to be like, guys, juice box next to the bed. But you already know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Well, I'm sure anybody, well, uh, plenty of people listening will absolutely use that tip. So I thank you for that, Bridget. <laughs> I have one more question for you. Yes. Okay. And I ask this question to every guest that we have. Uh-oh. And we, we get some different responses because people have different opinions and perspectives and even relationships with their diabetes but mm-hmm. Bridget if you had the opportunity to thank your diabetes for something what would that be oh that's easy that's not that seems easy to me I thought it was going to be more like intense um <laughs> I would thank it I mean it kind of feels like I should thank it for all the 15 things that it's taught me but the main one I would thank my diabetes for giving me balance because I think it forces me to pay kind attention to myself. Like I think it's really easy when life gets busy and there's so many demands to not put yourself first and to not feed yourself properly and not exercise yourself properly and not sleep yourself properly. None of that is the right English. (laughs) But I think... Having diabetes makes it a priority. It makes self-care a priority. Makes eating healthy food, moving your body, sleeping enough a priority. And I am so grateful for that because I think if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be in as good health as I am today. Thanks, diabetes. Fantastic answer. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much, Bridget. I've, again, really, really enjoyed this episode. Really enjoyed it. Me too. Where can people find out more about you, your books? The first ever podcast in South Africa, <laughs> Sweet Life. Diabetes podcast. Everything. Um, okay. Uh, Sweet Life, the website is sweetlife.org.za, O-R-G.za. Um, and we are sweetlife.org.za on Instagram and South Africans with Diabetes on Facebook. And I am BridgetMcNulty.com and Ms. Bridget McNulty, M-S, um, Bridget McNulty on Instagram, and on Facebook, but I don't really know what Facebook's for anymore. <laughs> I like Instagram. So I write like these long reflective posts 
with like an image and then as much caption as they'll let me write. I, I, like Instagram is a micro blogging platform I really enjoy. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Oh, and the podcast is called South Africans with Diabetes. We, we really try and keep it as uniform as possible, but I'll share all the links with you afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And I will have all of Bridget's links below. Social media, website, podcast, everything. You can check it out if you haven't got in touch with Bridget. You can tell by this podcast. Oh, the book. Good. Sorry, I forgot about the, the book. book. <laughs> the book. I was like, it feels like I've left something out. <laughs> the uh, it's, called, long. <laughs> it's called The Grief Handbook and you can buy it anyway. So it's on Amazon. It's in independent bookstores. Um, if they don't have it, you can ask them and they'll order it. Um, it's it, You can also, so I did a, an audio book of it, which is quite lovely. Actually, they did a beautiful job with it. There's like bird song in the, in the thoughtful bits. Um, you can get it as an ebook, but I wouldn't because the whole point is that you can color it in and write in it, and it's much better as a physical book. Mm. And it's a night that so a big, a big reason for why I did it was that we were deluged with all these flowers, which is so lovely, except then you're left with like dead flowers two weeks later, which is not lovely. So, um, people have said that it's a nice gift to give if someone has just lost someone they love. More evergreen than flowers. More evergreen, potentially helpful, also easy to put on a shelf if it's not the right time and then find it later. And that, that, so that's all on griefhandbook.com. And again, we will include all the links to Bridget's three books so you can check them out, buy them. <laughs> and hopefully you won't need latest oh, book, no. but it's a good tool to have if and when that time arises. But Bridget... Yeah. Thank you so much again. I've really, really, oh, thank really, you really enjoyed me. this conversation. No, such thank a so joy. Much. Thank you. I look forward to staying in touch with you and best of luck with everything in the future. I'm sure you have plenty of big things planned. <laughs> you too. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Another massive thank you to today's guest. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out their social channels and links that we've included in the episode description. If you enjoy the podcast, which I'm guessing you do because you listen, be sure to rate, subscribe, and share. It really, really helps the podcast get heard by more people when you rate, when you subscribe, and when you share. If you feel that you've been able to benefit from it so far, likely someone else would be too. If you have any questions or stories for myself and Graham, please do not hesitate to reach out. We absolutely love getting in the email stories and questions. You can do this through the Insulone podcast at gmail.com. And if you would like to learn more from me, stay connected or even work with me and other people living with type 1 diabetes who want to be fitter, healthier, and happier within my type 1% better online program, you can message me directly through Instagram or you can fill out an application form through the link in the podcast description. And as always, another massive thank you to you for your time and your ears. We greatly appreciate you showing up each week, time after time, ready to gain knowledge and confidence around your diabetes management. So until next week, have a good day, have a good week, look after those blood sugars, and I'll chat to you soon. Take it easy.